Hello and welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Search for books on parenting at Amazon and there are about 60,000 different books in hardback, paperback, and electronic editions. If you weren't overwhelmed before, you will be soon. There has to be a better way. Matt Ballard, lead pastor of South Point Community Church in Nolansville, Tennessee, brings us this message entitled, Parenting for Failures Like Me, which covers Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. Thank you for joining us today. My privilege now to introduce Matt Ballard Uh, does not need an introduction to many of us here except those that have come over the last two years because Matt was with us for five years from 05 to 10, uh, headed our young adult ministry. You have a more biographical sketch on him in your bulletin if you want to read through that. But uh, Matt left here to go to Nashville, a suburb area of Nashville to uh, plant a church that's going great guns, and we're very happy for the kingdom. We did not like the loss of him from here, but we are happy for kingdom, what happens. And uh, we're blessed to have him here. We're talking for three weeks about the three emphases that you're going to hear about more when you come to the, to the gatherings in the evening here. One is the city, Danny Werfel last week, uh, blessing the family, which will be uh, today. And then next week we'll have Bart Garrett, who used to be on our staff as well as one of our young adult leaders. In fact, prior to Matt coming here and he'll be addressing the next generation. So uh, three great uh, focus attention that we're looking forward to. But I'll tell you this, it's just a treat. Matt, come on up. I want to pray for you. It's just a treat to have you back, Matt. And I know I just keep hearing everybody how much they appreciate you and all that you did here for these years. And I want to pray for him now. I'll tell you this, you're in for a treat in his message. Let me pray for you, Matt. Father, thank you for Matt. Thank you for our friendship, uh, not just individually, but as a, as a church and now as churches. And we pray that you would grant to Matt a full power to deliver your truth to us. That your family, through whether it be individuals or marrieds, we just thank you for the work that you're doing in the family of this church. And we pray, may your kingdom come even this day. Because of Matt's ministry to us. Bless him, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, Matt. Amen. Uh, It's good to be back. Uh, I've always felt at home here because of you, and I feel right back at home again. I want to bring you greetings from South Point Community Church. Uh, Many of you have prayed for us. Uh, We started the church about two years ago with a dream that we could be a perfect place for very imperfect people. We existed, we exist to make Jesus the unavoidable issue, and it has been a privilege to have so many of you. I feel like I know ha- what's going on with half of you because of Facebook, but uh, just to know what's going on with you and knowing that you guys have been praying for us, supporting us financially has been huge. My wife, Chrissy, so wishes she could be here with my kids, but if you know my wife, my wife has got the heart of an artist and the grit of a Navy SEAL. And uh, she's the only girl in the all-men's basketball league at the Y where we live. Uh, and she went up to block a 25-year-old guy's shot the other day and blew her ACL out. So uh, she gets surgery next week and couldn't come today. But she says hello, too. Uh, you know, I've never, ever preached a, 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 a sermon on the family. This is the first for me. But, but I'm willing to guess, if you're anything like me, there, there's, a, there's a real hunger in all of us. 
when it comes to this topic of trying to figure out what in the world it means to be a God-centered family. I wish we could just open the Bible and find some simple template that we could tear out and, and then lay over our families and edit away everything that doesn't belong. But it's not that simple, is it? With the seemingly endless parade of books and the oftentimes contradictory ideas that are floating around out there, it can be so hard to sift through it all and figure out preference from principle. And in spite of the glut of information we're confronted with, when it comes to leading our families, most of us just don't know what to do or even how to do it. On top of that, a lot of us are doing it alone. We're single parents trying to slug it out by ourselves, or maybe we're married, but our spouse honestly seems so disconnected from the process that we feel like functional single parents. Plus, every kid is totally different. You can't raise them all exactly the same. I mean, I look at my three girls and and I wonder how in the world the three of them came from the same genetic cocktail. They're so different from one another. And though I have looked high and low, I've yet to find a convenient one size fits all. Here's how to do it right plan that really works. To complicate things, gosh, we live in a culture that is putting unbelievable pressure on our families. Our culture tells us that that our kids should be champion athletes, straight A scholars. They should be accomplished in some musical instrument and their senior theses should contain creative ideas on peace in the Middle East. And plus, if they don't end up being these completely well-adjusted kids, or God forbid they end up being average, the world looks at us like we're total failures. One of my friends said, I feel like I've got a Walmart family in a J. Crew world. <laughs> I love this picture. Check this out. I, this is a mother, and she says, I plan to give you love, nurturing, and just enough dysfunction to make you funny. You know, when I look at my own kids, I kind of think, if you guys need slightly less counseling than I needed, I've succeeded. (laughs) And so this is a sermon for those of us who have failed as parents. And the truth is, all of us have in one way or another. There's only one perfect parent, and that's God the Father. And all of the rest of us have failed and will, will fail and we need grace. And so the question is, what does the Bible say to parents like us? First, though, let me give you two quick disclaimers before I jump into the sermon. Number one, this sermon applies to everyone. If you're a single without kids, if you're a couple who can't have kids... If you're an empty nester, it doesn't matter. This applies to all of us because we are the church. And we have a corporate responsibility to cultivate the sort of atmospheric conditions in this place that helps people, especially the next generation, to see and experience the reality of Jesus. It's our responsibility to make every person we lock eyes with know that Jesus is the unavoidable issue. 
to show them that he's not a concept we buy into, but he's the core of all that we are. Disclaimer number two. I'm going to frustrate some of you because I am not going to give you a very specific how-to list for leading a family. Instead, what I'm going to do is talk about, again, cultivating the atmospheric conditions within your home that make Jesus the unavoidable issue, that make Jesus beautiful. So I'm not going to get into so much of do this or don't do that. And here's why. You don't need another list. Because if you haven't already, you're going to make terrible mistakes parenting. And if all you're focused on is that list, you're, you're going to forget that just because you don't do it all right doesn't mean you've screwed your kids up uh, irredeemably. God is bigger than your parenting failures. And your kids are resilient. But God's grace is more resilient than they are. And so what I'm suggesting is based on long-term relationships and the promise of grace. And so when you screw up in the specifics, and you will, you can rest assured that you're not destroying your kids. When you lose your temper and scream and you feel terrible about it, or when you pass judgments without knowing all the facts, or even if you betray your family, that doesn't mean there's no hope for you. Our children are raised over a lifetime. Not just during one event, not in a week, and not even in a year. So this is all about the atmosphere of God-centeredness in your home. Smells. Smells are very important. When I smell my wife's perfume, I get lightheaded and giggly. And when I go to my kids' school and I smell their cafeteria, I have the sort of a culinary experience of post-traumatic stress disorder. (laughs) And so the question is, what does your home smell like? What's the atmosphere like there? Because I'm not going to give you tons of concrete answers. I'm going to talk about shaping the atmosphere so that it radiates the aroma of Jesus, who is full of both grace and truth who always gave law and boundaries, but in the context of tender and thoughtful love. You know, in light of that, the the most salient thing that shapes the leadership of our families is our personal experience with God, our personal relationship with him. If we're living our lives in a relationship of grace and we're experiencing God's love for us in spite of our failings and we are tasting his love and his mercy and forgiveness in spite of our weaknesses and all the ways that we disappoint him. You see, our personal experiences of God will shape our expressions of grace towards our kids. Because at the end of the day, you tend to treat other people like you think God treats you. And so along these lines, I'm going to have one big point and three little ones. My main point is this. To have a Godward family, have a big God and a big gospel. 
I'm going to camp out on one text, and it's in Colossians chapter 1, and it's about Jesus. And it describes him this way. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he's the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven. By making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. This is God's word. It's not hard to see from that text that the question it wants us to ask ourselves is who do we say Jesus is? Who's Jesus? Because that question is the ultimate question you're ever going to answer. Over the course of your lives, you'll answer all sorts of questions. Some are stupid, some innocuous, some are important, but only one is ultimate. What does Jesus mean to you? Because how you answer that question will determine everything about you. It will determine how you view reality. How you view other people. How you view yourself. What you believe about Jesus will determine your life purpose. How you process your life's problems. How you decide your life's priorities. What you value, what you pitch, what you're passionate about, and what you don't give a rip about. Developing a Godward atmosphere in your home starts with the question, who is Jesus? Is he the unavoidable issue in your life? C.S. Lewis cuts through the fog and says it like this. If Christianity is false, it is of no importance. If it is true, it is of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. And so the passage we read is addressing the issue of supremacy. What is supreme to you? Not what is prominent in your life. But what is preeminent to your life? And here's why this is such a big deal. When you're in the presence of someone who's supreme, someone who's peerless without rival, you change. And nobody has to tell you to do it. I went to high school in Macon, Georgia. 
little small school. And in, in my high school, there were three things that enabled you to be supreme. You had to have athletic ability or some unusual talent, or you had to be able to beat people up. I'll never forget my senior year of high school. Someone came in uh, to the 10th grade and he immediately entered into the very bottom, the social basement of the pecking order because he had none of the above. He moved there from California and he was a little tiny skinny fella and and his hair was all Californian and his clothes looked like something I'd seen on Miami Vice and his accent wasn't nearly as refined as mine. And so he was picked on mercilessly until the day he turned 16. Because the day he turned 16, he comes into the parking lot of our little school with a shiny new red Ferrari 328 GTS. And suddenly, in, a, in just a split second, the entire balance of power socially shifted in his direction and women flocked around him and every guy wanted to be him because it was supreme. When you're in the presence of supremacy, you will change and no one has to tell you you need to change. When you're sick and you go to the greatest doctor, your rest level goes up and your anxiety goes down. If you get on an airplane and you hear that it's being piloted by Scully Scullenberger who landed that plane in the Hudson that day, your rest goes up and your anxiety goes down. If you're in the presence of a phenomenal artist or musician, the sense of awe you feel brings with it humility. And it puts an end to self-impressed pride. When I find myself watching George Winston do things on the piano that absolutely defy the laws of physics. Or I find myself involuntarily weeping at the crescendo of Handel's Messiah. Or if I stand in front of a painting by Rembrandt and I feel as if I'm enveloped by the scene and I'm invited into its profundity, I'm changed. I'm put in my place. I feel small, but my soul gets bigger. Because the moment you're in the presence of the supreme, you respond, you change. And so in Colossians, what Paul is doing is he's, he's addressing Christians who've begun to doubt the supremacy of Jesus. And his response to them is, as you see the reality, the supremacy of Jesus, what you'll do is this. You'll push everything else in your life to where it belongs, to the periphery. But let's be honest about our stories. The truth is, every time we sin, way down deep, underneath our sin, at the core level, there's a fundamental belief That our wisdom, our desire, our choice is supreme. And so when we choose to live our life on our terms versus God's terms, what we're basically doing is trying to pull a coup d'etat to he who is ultimately supreme. We try to elbow our way back up onto the throne of our lives and we engage in these ridiculous little turf wars with the king of glory. 
And we fall into the false belief that Jesus is nice to have around. That he's a highly desirable accessory for life. But he's not absolutely necessary to life. Because we forget he's the way, the truth, and the life. And what we're doing is functionally, whatever you believe, what we're, what we're saying is, he's not ultimately supreme. We are. And so we find ourselves pursuing him and desiring him and talking to him when we want something or when life's not working like we think it should. But we disregard him and ignore him and avoid him when his authority over our lives becomes, as Al Gore would say, an inconvenient truth. Here's a question. What if you were God? How would you deal with us? Put yourself in God's shoes. How does Paul deal with people? who are doubting and forgetting the supremacy of Jesus. Does he lecture them, confront them, rebuke them, rub their nose in it with reality discipline? No. He doesn't do any of that. Instead, he unveils to them the supremacy of Jesus, knowing that if we deal with Jesus in all that he is, we will change. If the reality of Jesus, the beauty of who he is, the wonder of what he did, if that reality will ever dawn in our hearts, we will change. And so will our families. And so Paul uses these words to paint this stunning portrait of supremacy for us to see. He starts with saying, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He's the image. Now, when you hear the word image, get rid of the idea of a mere representation. He's not a counterfeit knockoff. He's not a bad print of a great painting. The word does not mean representation. The word image means manifestation. Not a photo of, but the presence of. In fact, verse 19 says... God was pleased to have all of his fullness to dwell in Jesus. And so when someone saw Jesus, he didn't see a little bit of God, but he saw him all. He he didn't get a watered down hors d'oeuvre, but a full strength unveiling of God's heart. John 14, Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. He's a manifestation, not a representation. Let me try to illustrate this. The sun is 93 million miles away. And inside of this massive object, that could, the diameter of which could fit one million earths, inside this massive object, hydrogen and helium are violently reacting in a perpetual thermonuclear explosion that reaches upwards of 27 million degrees Fahrenheit. The light from the sun takes 8.5 minutes to reach the surface of the earth. And when it does, it hits the earth with the equivalent of 4 million horsepower per square mile. And if you put your hand in it, 
your body will produce vitamin D. And if you stand in it unprotected, it will burn you. And if it wasn't there, not only could you not see, but you would freeze to death. And the sun doesn't want to manifest itself to you because it has no feelings. But God, who is trillions and trillions of times greater than the sun, has manifested himself to you and I. He says he's the firstborn over creation. Uh, The idea of firstborn is a Jewish concept. It just simply means the one who's supreme. Because the issue is supremacy. It means that God took infinite truth and stuffed it in the skin of a man. And it's that man who is to be valued above everything in our lives. You know, there are lots of things that I value today that I used to didn't care anything about. I remember having to listen to Mozart for music class. And to me at the time, it seemed like a indecipherable cacophony of instruments I would never listen to in my car naturally. And there were no lyrics. Can you believe I preferred 80s hair bands to Mozart? I undervalued what was most valuable. And that's Paul's logic. Paul says, don't undervalue what's most valuable. Listen, if the creator of the heavens and the earth says he is supreme, who are you to disagree with him? If Einstein says, this is right, who are you to say, no, it's not. He's your creator. Verse 16 says, for by him, all things were created. Now, this was a, contextually, this was a direct assault on the Gnostic heresy because the Gnostics were trying to make Jesus into this sort of super spiritual concept, an abstract and interesting concept to be studied, not the core of who they were as people. And so what Paul is saying is, abstract concept? Oh, no, he's not. Jesus is the God of the here and now. The God of Monday morning. The God that's not scared to jump into the middle of my messy, dysfunctional family. He's not a super spiritual yet disconnected and disinterested deity. He's Emmanuel. God who is with us. The God who gets us. Who understands how hard it is to be a parent because he is God the Father. The, the, the God who's willing to engage in the ultimate dirty job of rolling up his sleeve and jumping into the most broken parts of your heart. And he isn't threatened in the least by your messiness or how hopeless and toxic the environment in your family feels. He's the definer. Because it says all things were created by him and for him. I have an Android phone, and it's a good phone, but only for the purpose for which it was designed. In other words, if I took my Android and tried to use it like a hammer or a golf tee, it would go poorly because I'm violating its design. Do you know why so many aspects of our family, families are going haywire right now? Why the atmosphere 
it's more about anxiety and anger and revenge than it is of grace and peace and forgiveness? It's because when we live for ourselves instead of the purpose for which we were designed to live for him, they come apart. You see, you weren't designed for you. And when you make living for you your chief end, your life will not get better. It will get worse. But he's also our sustainer. Verse 19 says, he, I'm sorry, verse 17 says he holds all things together. It's in Christ that molecules and atoms maintain their property. It's in Christ that your salvation remains knit to your soul. And it's in him that your family can be held together. He holds all things together, not you. Not your worry, not your sweat, not your tears, not your anxiety. He does. And verse 19 says, God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. That means that when Jesus weeps at the death of one man, Lazarus, you learn about the heart of the invisible God. When Jesus is making his way through a standing room only crowd and a broken, forgotten old woman touches the hem of his garment and he knows it, you're learning about how sensitive the creator of heaven and earth is to your pain. When Peter tells Jesus, leave me alone, Because I'm too ugly and broken. He says, get away from me for I'm a sinful man. And he won't even look at him because his head is bowed down with shame. And Jesus says, nope, I'm not going anywhere. You learn about the tenacity of his grace. And so what this passage is getting at at the end of the day is simply that the death of an obscure Jewish man on a garbage heap in the backwater of the Roman Empire was the event that reconciled heaven and earth and therefore is the only event that gives ultimate and true hope for your families. And our families may be broken and may be dysfunctional. And may be ravaged by sin, but God loves them. And God intends to both redeem them and restore them in Christ. But it gets bigger. Because the goal of the resurrection is not merely to give hope to your family. God is not satisfied to to just be the reconciler of your home the goal in verses 18 through 20 is way bigger. Verses eight, verse 18 says, so that in everything he might have supremacy. And verse 20 says that in all things. Here's what's so crazy. God's intention is not just to bless your family, but to use your family. To make your family a, an information kiosk about Jesus To let your family be an outpost of redemption in the world. To let your dinner table be the place where miracles happen. The miracles of eternal collisions between disinterested people and the kingdom of God. To use your involvement in athletics event and school. To even use your retired years to this end. 
Because that's what's going to impact your kids. Not lecturing them. When they see that you have a bigger vision for your family than just keeping them out of trouble or hoping they make more money than you made. God is reconciling the world to himself through the death of his son. And maybe the most humbling and hopeful aspect of this whole passage is in verse 21. You see what it says? It says, I didn't do this for nice people with perfect families. I did it for the kind of messy families and the messy people who resist and checkpoint me, checkmate me at every point. And so the question is, how do, you, how do you need to respond? Don't ever go to church looking for info because God's revelation to you is your invitation to respond. How do you respond to this? Because, you know, God's not up in heaven wringing his hands saying, I so need to be in their family. God doesn't need your family. He doesn't need you. God doesn't need you. But you know what? God wants you. He desires you. He gave his son to die for you. And so what do you do with Jesus? Is he the unavoidable issue in your home? Because in light of this truth, to think of church purely in pragmatic terms, to think church is where I go to outsource the spiritual care of my children to paid professionals. Church is where I go to check off a box to say I've been there and done that. I'm doing my part. To not deal with Jesus, but to think that way, that is like sleeping through Handel's Messiah. It's like driving by the Grand Canyon and not even noticing. It's, it's like ripping down a Van Gogh painting and using it like a page in a coloring book. It's yawning at the aurora borealis. To think that God doesn't need you, but God wants you, desires you. Because that's the ultimate legacy for you to leave your children. What are your kids going to inherit from you? What are they going to get? Stuff? Stocks? Money? Houses? Or are they going to get a heritage of God-wardness that shepherds them into the reality of Jesus? Not just the wallpaper and window dressing of been there, done that, dead religion. That's point one. I got three more quick ones. Because the question is, well, how do you develop those atmospheric conditions in your home? Here's the thing. I don't totally know. I was getting ready for my sermon the other night. I looked at my house and I'm thinking, oh my gosh, all three of my kids and my wife are in our room and everybody's staring in a screen in a circle. I'm thinking, (laughs) oh boy. Um, I do have a few thoughts though. First or number second point is this. You learn to say you're sorry and you mean it. Here's the greatest news of all. Did you know that God is not interested in the fake you that everybody thinks you are? God's not interested in the you that you wish you were. 
God is only interested in the you that really is with all of your hypocrisy and all of your inconsistencies and even your hidden life. And for a lot of us, Jesus isn't working for us because we've been trying to get Jesus to work on this persona we've been projecting to everybody and he doesn't work on a fictional you. He only works on the real messy, non-fictional you. But he's committed to that you and there's enough elasticity in his heart to embrace you with all of your issues. And if you believe that, that frees you up from insecurity And it frees you to be gut-level honest. So be the chief repenter in your home. Let everybody in your home learn what repentance looks like through your life. Because you know what? You know who the real spiritual leaders are in our church? The men and the women who are the real spiritual leaders? They aren't the ones that look the most competent. They're the ones who repent the most. And I'm going to tell you something. I've learned a lot more from G- about Jesus through seeing grace flow through people's cracks than being impressed with their competencies. Are your children learning to conceal their sin or confess their sin from your life? Let them see what's so indescribably amazing about grace. Third point. Repent of trying to control their lives and learn how to love them. Um, I'd guess in this room, if you're anything like me, some of us tend to be overly strict and some of us tend to be overly permissive. And both of these can be equally enslaving to our children. For you, for you over strict parents... Work harder at what it means to lead your children versus just to manage their lives. You see, I really believe that the devil lives in the urge to control rather than liberate a human heart. And so be so careful that you don't shame them into submission. Or control them by comparing them with everybody else. Or disciplining them for your sake because you're mad or they embarrassed you versus for their sake. And for those of us who tend to be overly permissive and want our kids to be our buddies more than we want to be their parents, find out, learn what it means to be a present parent, not just a proximity parent. Invest the time to get to know them in such a way that you are able to set boundaries to help them become who God's calling them to be. I'll never forget sitting in my office one day way back when I was on staff at First Presbyterian Church in Augusta, Georgia, and my phone rang. And on the other end of the phone was none other than John Piper. John Piper, if you don't know, he's a well-known author and theologian and pastor. And he said, is this Matt Ballard? I said, yes. He goes, this is John Piper. Do you know who I am? Yes, sir. I do, Dr. Piper. And he made this statement. He said, "Um, I have a, a prodigal son. His name is Abraham, and Abraham is currently in a band touring bars across the nation, and he's in your town. Is there any way you could grab some friends to go down there and watch him play, just to let him know that daddy loves him? Sure. I went down there, and after uh, listening to the set, I pulled him aside, introduced myself, and said, hey, man, is it weird that you—here you are, you're an avowed agnostic, You, you don't live— life on any way, shape, or form like your mom and dad do. 
Is it weird to be where you are and have this big time Christian name for a father? And he said, you know, it's really not hard at all. In fact, my dad's my hero. I said, what? He said, yeah. He goes, my dad totally disagrees with my life and I totally disagree with his. But I have never doubted that my dad loves me with all his heart and I'm always welcome. By the way, he ended up becoming a Christian. I think he's now president of Desiring God Ministries. That's uh, the, the ministry of John Piper. Lastly, give yourself to something bigger than yourself. Did you know that the goal of the Christian life is not just don't sin? The goal of Christian parenting is not to try to keep your kids safe and free from pain at all times. The goal of the Christian life is to glorify God and enjoy him. And we do that by investing in his kingdom. What would it mean for your family to be invested in the kingdom of God and not giving itself to some lost cause? Loyalty to lost causes is what robs the atmosphere of Godwardness. It was on December 26th of 1944 that 2nd Lieutenant Hiro Anada of the Japanese Imperial Army landed on the island of Lubang in the Philippines and his orders were clear. Resist the Americans and fight for the emperor until you die. He was cut off from his unit and never got word nine months later that the war was over. And so for 30 more years, he continued to fight World War II. He raided villages and stole food. He shot at people. And even though people tried to convince him through leaflets and loudspeaker that the war is over, he wouldn't believe them. Finally, the Japanese government in 1974 sent his old commanding officer who got on a loudspeaker and commanded him to surrender. And he finally did. But as I read that story, all I could think about is here's a man who gave 30 years of his life loyal to a lost cause. And we can be so like him with our thoughts and dreams and loyalties given to what Randy calls so what life pursuits. It's a tragically easy thing to give yourself to something to something that's currently interesting but ultimately meaningless, to be loyal to a lost cause. Give yourself to something bigger than you and give your family to something bigger than just your family. With that being said, let me conclude with this. Most of us are painfully aware that we are not perfect parents and we sure know our kids are not perfect kids. But the ultimate answer to our mutual messiness isn't more rules or five more hints on how to be a parent, even though sometimes they do seem to produce less messy kids. What our children need is a savior who's gone before them as a faithful high priest who is once a kid himself and who lived and died perfectly in their place. They need a savior who extends the offer of complete forgiveness apart from their performance and a savior who promises to finish what he starts, even if it involves walking through toxic swamps of bad decisions. They need to know that in Christ, They're forever safe from the wrath of God. But in Christ, they're not safe from his love. And his love can be redemptively disruptive. That's what we all need. We all need the gospel of grace 
and we all need the grace of the gospel. Let's pray together. Father, what a, what a foreboding challenge it is to be your children and to be entrusted with children. So, Father, we pray that you would enable us to cultivate an atmosphere of grace, of mercy, of hope, and of truth in our homes. And we ask this for your greater glory and for our richer joy in the salvation of the nations. Amen. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia, with services Saturday night at 6 and Sunday morning at 9 and 1045. Please visit our website for more information at www.perimeter.org. Be sure to visit the Media Resources section to give us your feedback and find other messages from our teaching team.